0: You're listening to the On Fire Empire podcast, episode number 40.
1: Hi friends, Kelly Bennett here. Welcome to another episode of the On Fire Empire podcast. You know, during these challenging times with COVID-19, where our day-to-day has been disrupted and we're doing things in a whole new way as we work through this worldwide pandemic, we thought we'd change it up. For the podcast. So we're bringing you both audio and video. And today is going to be a fantastic interview. During these times, there is something that continues to go on. And it's a topic a lot of people don't want to talk about, but we need to talk about it. And that is the topic of abuse and domestic violence. More than ever with people sheltering in place, many folks who are the victims of controller abusers are now Isolated and really locked into place with that abuser. So whether you are one of those folks who is experiencing domestic violence, control, and or any other form of abuse within your home or your children are, or if you're a friend or a family or a neighbor and you might be hearing things or you're aware that there's been some problems with someone you love in the past, this episode is for you. So today, I'm bringing you my interview with Katie Gilbertson. Katie is a phenomenal professional. She works within the Riverside County District Attorney's Office in their Victim Services Unit, overseeing what we call the SAFE Family Justice Centers. SAFE is a nonprofit organization here in Southern California that partners with our courts and SAFE stands for Safe Alternatives for Everyone. And SAFE is a domestic violence education, prevention, and intervention agency. I've known them and worked with them for years and they are amazing people, as are those with our district attorney's office. So you're going to hear from Katie today as we talk about this issue of what this domestic violence season looks like. I don't mean to call it a season, but what's happening in home what you can do if you are a victim of domestic violence or you're concerned that it may be escalating within your home, and what you can do as a loved one, as a family member, as a concerned neighbor, as a friend. Now more than ever, we need to pay attention to this issue and look out for our friends, our family, and our neighbors. So without further ado, here's my interview with Katie Gilbertson the Executive Director of Safe Family Justice Centers.
2: Welcome to the On Fire Empire. Each week, seasoned divorce and business lawyer, mediator, CEO, and surf diva Kelly Bennett will help you discover strategies and smarter paths to big results. As you listen, you may ask yourself, how'd Kelly know I was going through that? It may feel like she's a fly on the wall of your life. She's intuitive, direct, and on point. Kelly brings the amazing lessons from her life's work to the table to set you up for a blazing bright future. We firmly believe lasting empires happen when well-rounded leaders achieve personal happiness, live out their calling, and develop meaningful relationships. Now it's time to hear from Kelly and her crew of experts, learn some new strategies, challenge your way of thinking, and get juiced about igniting your empire of a lifetime. The information provided in this podcast is for general interest only and not intended as legal advice, nor does it create an attorney-client relationship between you and Kelly. And now, here's Kelly.
1: Well, Katie Gilbertson, welcome to the On Fire Empire podcast. It's such a delight to have you today.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Oh, man. You bring such a wealth of information to a very timely topic that so many of our listeners are thinking about, dealing with, and I'll venture to say probably a few of our listeners are struggling with this issue, and that is... During this time, while we're sheltering in place with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're talking about how do you deal with domestic violence and the likelihood that there might be more incidents of domestic violence. And Katie, you've got such an impressive track record and career. Let me just start before we dive in. Can you share with us for a minute what attracted you to the field of victim advocacy and working with I know you work with all kinds of victims, but now, in particular, domestic violence victims. What drew you to this profession?
0: Well, I love crime documentaries, and I spent a lot of time growing up wanting to do something related to the criminal justice system. And so when I was trying to figure out sort of where I wanted to land in the world, I actually answered a penny saver ad about a victim advocate position. I remember the penny saver. (laughs) Yeah, Uh And um, flash forward, that sort of put me on this trajectory for my career. So I had the opportunity to serve as a volunteer victim advocate with the Center Against Sexual Assault here in Riverside County. And it was one of the most amazing decisions I've ever made in my life. Never going back, huh? Yeah, never going back. Once I found advocacy, that was it for me. Well, I thought what was interesting
1: when I was going over your bio and just all those amazing things that you've done, there were a couple of things that I thought the audience would probably want to know and understand. And one of them was in the work that you did, at least I know you're doing some other things now, as a domestic violence and a sexual assault counselor, you talked about in the bio that you accompany victims to interviews with law enforcement and medical exams. And I presume some of that goes on in court as well. And so in that role, as the victim advocates and counselors, you talked about the role being ensuring
0: a trauma informed approach. What did you mean by that? So what that really means is that as a professional, I have a responsibility. It's my role to help victims of crime, but to really think about what it means for people who work in this field. So it's important that we recognize that our policies and that our procedures and everything that we sort of do in our day-to-day is focused on on being able, one, to get our job done, but two, to be responsive to victims of crime in a way that's going to be sensitive for them. We have to do an interview. It's really important that we take a look at where we do that and how we do that and sort of what the nature of our questions are. All the way working through the criminal justice system process, if that's necessary, we just have to think about what it is we do in our work that is going to be be sensitive in nature to the people that we serve and what might potentially re-victimize them.
1: Well, and while law enforcement gets some training in these areas, I'm sure that people looking at, you know, like you said, you you watch a lot of CSI and crime shows and things of that nature, got your interest (laughs) going in the whole field, but we see that on television depicted in some in reality TV and not so real. But that idea of if you're a victim having to go in and be questioned or interviewed might be pretty scary for someone, but I imagine that you're the buffer that brings a little more protection and sensitivity between the victim, and the interviewing law
0: enforcement officer, for example. Absolutely. One of the things that I love about my job in victim advocacy is that we're able to serve as like a navigator. It's our role as victim advocates to have conversations with victims of crime and let them know what they should expect, what the next steps are going to be. We have the opportunity to provide context. So if a law enforcement officer is asking that one really difficult question that might even sound judgmental, we can explain to survivors what the reason for that is and what it truly means and how it contributes to their investigation. And I think when they have that kind of background information, it really puts them in a position to be more trusting of the environment and to not feel like they've been judged or something you know, is their fault.
1: Oh, that's so good, because you're bringing the why to the entire
0: situation.
1: Exactly. That's so good. And what a relief to know that those kinds of services are available, so victims aren't on their own. Mm -hmm. Well, can you talk for just a moment about Marcy's Law? So part of what you do and the folks you manage do is to ensure that victims' rights under Marcy's Law are protected and advocated for. So can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So Marcy's Law is actually the Victims Crime Bill of Rights. It was passed in 2008 here in California. And what it allowed for us to do was make certain rights in the criminal justice system a constitutional right for our victims of crime. So when you hear and see Marcy's Law, you're going to see it more frequently on the level of the district attorney's office if you're working with victim advocates there. But Marcy's Law really is a responsibility that all victim service providers have to share with victims of crime crime when you think about someone who's going through crisis and has experienced trauma, the number one question on their mind is not going to be okay, tell me about my rights. what am I entitled to? And so it's really important that victim advocates are in a position where they can tell people and educate them about what their rights are and make sure that that's a part of their dialogue as we go through the process of trying to serve them.
1: How does that play into what public defenders will do? during a trial as it relates to a victim on the stand?
0: Well, when we're dealing with the criminal justice system, lots of different things happen. There's typically information that's exchanged about the victim, and it helps protect their information so that only the relevant parties can have access to it. It allows for people to be interviewed in a way that is trauma-informed, and so we have the opportunity to interview, or victims have the opportunity to interview at the district attorney's office. They can have support people with them if they're interviewing with defense attorneys, and they have the opportunity to decline interviews if that's something that they would like to do. But again, it's about bringing information to victims and letting them choose what they want their role to look like as they're going forward and and making sure that they can make informed decisions.
1: And boy, it really brings so much to the table, much different than the old days and and what victims kind of when they felt like they were out on their own, going through Mm -hmm. the process. Well, let's fast forward to present day. And here we are working and navigating through this worldwide pandemic, sheltering at home. You're at the DA's office right now, I presume, <laughs> as, you, as we video here, working part-time at the office and trying to shelter in place. We're all navigating this. But so in this situation, and I think it's so important too because this pandemic is going to go away, but it doesn't mean we won't see other things that disrupt our lives like this. So in these times of COVID-19, where we've got so many people sheltering in place in their homes, are you seeing any declines or increases in the domestic violence rate, incidence of domestic violence? Give me your thoughts on that.
0: You know, it's a really interesting time for us. Statistically, we haven't seen an increase, but we also haven't seen a decrease. In in March alone, we served 468 victims of crime, in the county of Riverside, and so that's very comparable to what the rest of the quarter looked like for each month. Those are new people that we served, and so I think right now what's going on is domestic violence is still happening, absolutely. The law enforcement agencies are responding. We have lots of different community partners who are calling with victims who are in need of assistance. And so I think two things are happening. I think that we know domestic violence is occurring and that people are in a greater need than I think usual because of COVID. I think they're more vulnerable and they have more hardships. But I also find that right now what we're dealing with are a situation where maybe it's not safe for people to reach out. And so we suspect that there are a lot of people out there who just don't know what to do and they don't know where to go. It's just
1: accelerated the difficulty of a DV situation altogether. By the way, I know the answer to this as a family law attorney, but for the listening audience, can you share for just a moment, is a domestic violence perpetrator, is that demographic oriented or is it an equal opportunity abuser?
0: Statistically, we find that the demographic of abusers are male, but we also find that there's a lot of information out there that, and stigma about males becoming victims of crime as well. And so overwhelmingly, I can tell you from the population that we serve, the majority of the time, the survivors that we're working with are female, but domestic violence affects everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, what your age is, what your gender or socioeconomic status is. It affects everyone in a different way. And so we respond to everyone.
1: And I think that's so important to point out because so many people, it's surprising that folks just assume stereotypes that it's more prone to happen in particular ethnicity and socioeconomic class as well. But it's happening in the big houses as well as the small apartments as well.
0: And that's what makes domestic violence such a big problem in our community because it it affects everyone. Yes.
1: Yeah. Huge. So Katie, let's talk about behaviors. And this is so important to those who are in a home where they're living with an abuser who's at any level. Let's talk about escalation. What kinds of warning signs are there to watch for when it comes to a situation possibly escalating? So we're going to go with the female stereotype for a moment. A lady who's been living with someone who's been extremely controlling verbally abusive and the occasional maybe rough grab on the arm out of frustration during an argument. What kinds of warning signs should she be looking for for that behavior to become escalated and elevated in these moments?
0: Well, everything that you just described is exactly it. So when we talk about different types of abuse and coercion and control and that sort of thing, what we're looking for are just examples of power and control. Anytime that there is a disruption in in the equality of a relationship is something to kind of stop and take a look at. And I think it's important for for people to know that abuse kind of comes in all forms. So It depends. We work with a lot of individuals who have been just verbally abused. If they're constantly put down or they're being told that they're ugly or that they're not worth certain things in the world, or they're not as meaningful as they could be, that sort of thing that comes up quite often. But I think the progression is being able to see different elements add up. We see different escalations in physical abuse, and I think it's important to note that We all live in a world where boundaries are very important. And anytime you have the opportunity to see that a a boundary has been violated and you don't make a correction to that action, then that means that something potentially worse could happen again and that that person is going to allow for something else to happen. So... What we find often is just increased isolation, increased use of power and control, increased use of people, not having the ability to make their own choices comes up very frequently. That'll show up
1: often on the, you can't have these friends or family, I'm your only friend, things of that nature.
0: Isolation happens very often, so we find that people, before they enter a relationship, can be very social and have lots of different hobbies and activities in their life. And as the relationship progresses, those things might go away. And what's very difficult about abuse is that sometimes it's not as apparent or you can't see it as easily. Sometimes different forms of power and control might come off as being endearing. It's that that person... Thinks that you're very beautiful, and they tell you that they want to spend all of their time with you, and they prefer that your hair is down because you're more beautiful than when you like to wear it in a bun. You know, just little acts of of our radar start going up. Yeah, (laughs) and so for everyone, it's different. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, and I'm going to throw you a question here that I find some of our law clients are surprised when we stop and question them on this. So, if a woman were to say. I'm kind of starting to feel these little bits of the control starting up when he's lost his job, very upset about it. And now he's home all day. And you might say has, in addition to these other things, the behavioral issues, from a physical point of view, has he grabbed you or done anything? Well, no, not really. How about the cell phone? Mm-hmm. Grabbed a cell phone out of your hand. Talk to me about why that might be something really important to think about if it goes from verbal to grabbing a cell phone out of your hand, why that's something to really listen to.
0: Sometimes abuse manifests in in ways that aren't directly towards the individual person. So cell phone and other property damage is huge. We see that quite often. With cell phone, we know that your phone is the gateway to the outside world. It's who you're going to be able to call for help and how you're going to be able to call them and how you document what you do. And so that usually is the first thing to go for a lot of people who experience violence because that's how... Abusers are able to make sure that they are isolated. Um, We also see different things that occur like abuse towards pets or abuse towards the children or threatening to put somebody in a position where they might exchange information that is a secret or, or something that might hurt someone else. So it's not always directed individually towards the victim, but there's a lot of use of manipulation for people to use that, that power and control over their victims.
1: Super important signs that taking one by all by itself may not seem like anything, but this is important information that people need to know for sure. Yeah. Well, Katie, you know, a lot of times...
2: This break is brought to you by Kelly's new book, Victim Is Not Your Name, remembering your true identity in the midst of life challenges. In Victim Is Not Your Name, you'll discover a potent yet practical plan to move beyond suffering into a life of significance, joy, and hopefulness. Victim Is Not Your Name is available now on ebook and paperback and audio on Amazon.com and at VictimIsNotYourName.com That's VictimIsNotYourName.com
1: A domestic violence victim might develop a mindset, and I reckon it's going on a lot right now of I'm home with my controller abuser, and it's okay. I don't need to do anything because as long as I keep things the way he likes it, and men out there, I don't mean to <laughs> disparage because we've had a lot of male clients that we've represented. And like you said, we could do a whole podcast on that. There's a whole nother layer of things that go on there in the psyche for males to report. But we've got a woman here and she may be saying, as long as I keep this house as neat as a pin and picked up perfectly and have his meals to him at the time he wants them and cook what he likes, I'll be okay. What would you say to someone like that in that situation right now today?
0: Oh man. Well, I think a few things. I think all of the things really quick that we just talked about, even though we're focusing on a female relationship, it all applies. Again, it doesn't matter who you are. If these are things that you're identifying with, take them for exactly what we're describing them as and please use all of the materials that we're giving you today. But for a survivor in this perspective, I would want to talk to them and caution them about sort of keeping a business-as-usual mindset. I think that for survivors who are in relationships that a lot of abuse occurs in, they are very resilient, strong individuals. And I think surviving is exactly what they know how to do. But I also think it's important that we have some discussion about what stakes have changed and what makes their situation, how can I say it, much more dangerous. I think you can never underestimate or feel like you have full control over being able to prevent abuse from happening in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's important for us to have dialogue about how abuse can be unpredictable. There's a lot of stress yeah. in the home right now. And, and, and I think because, don't you think
1: because if someone's been successful in surviving this far, there's a human tendency to look at past behavior and results to garner some sense of certainty for what's to come in the future? And sounds like your advice would be don't trust that for a second.
0: Well, I think it's both. I think that you do have to trust your intuition. Only you know what your relationship is like and you know what some of those things that set the abuser off might be. But I think it's also important to know that survivors aren't the ones to set their abusers off. Their abusers are already abusive for a reason. And there's not a lot of things that you can constantly physically do yourself to prevent that from happening because it's not about what you're doing. It's about them having access to you and them knowing that they can readily abuse you based off of what they want to do. It's their own power and control. That is so important
1: because so many victims think, And that's what that mindset is, right? You know, if only I, that it's about them and it really isn't at all,
0: right? It's not not about them. And so I, I think the biggest thing that you can say is to always be weary and always plan and be aware of what potential resources are available because the very nature of abuse is to make somebody feel hopeless. It's to make somebody feel like they can't make their own decision. And it's to make them feel like they can't be empowered to live their own life. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of victims right now are walking in their home right now on eggshells, trying to figure out how to just keep things at bay so that there is no escalation. Something that came to mind, and I know this is going to be
1: right off the top of your head, <laughs> but I want to I pick your brain on this talk to the victim who's in the home trying to keep the escalation from going there and just not really wanting to, being afraid for whatever reason, right? There's no shame and judgment in this, but just feeling like he or she can't reach out and grab on and avail themselves of the resources that we're going to talk about in a moment, but they've got children in the home. What impact does this have on children And we particularly talk to, let's say, the woman who says, but the children are always upstairs in bed when these things happen, so they don't really know. What would you say to that?
0: The dialogue that we would have is actually just very simple. Your kids are are not in a situation where they're immune. If there's violence going on in the home, no matter what you do to try and hide that, they're going to know and chances are they've seen things that you don't know about, they've heard things that you don't know about and they're probably just waiting for somebody to come and ask them about it. Right. Um, and if it
1: doesn't get resolved, what's the likelihood of this problem
0: becoming a generational problem within well, that- that's, a, that's a really good point. I think it's important for for people to know that abuse is a learned behavior. The statistics related to children growing up to become future victims or future abusers are very high. And again, it's because it's a learned behavior. And so if you don't have somebody there who is able to address the fear and the chronic toxic stress that comes with witnessing domestic violence and the ability to process with them and talk to them about their fears and that sort of thing, the impact can be pretty devastating. And so we get lots of kids that come into our centers every day who have seen all kinds of different things, abuse, arguments, their property destroyed. They've had to leave the home multiple times and sometimes sleep on the street for the night because the abuser won't let them return to the house. So all I can say is that children are not immune. I think that it's important to note, though, that when you're an adult in crisis, as long as sometimes your kids look physically okay, that may not always be the sole focus of the family for the moment. But I do think it's important that we have constant dialogue about how the kids are affected and that we're able to teach them things like safety plans and what to do when they're afraid and who they can go and get help from.
1: And that's so just uplifting to know that that help is there. And I know the work that we all do at SAFE, and we're going to put links, of course, to SAFE Alternatives for Everyone and the Family Justice Centers and, and those resources at the end of our show, in our show notes, huge with the kids, huge. Yeah. We always like to tell folks coming through our doors, you're fooling yourself if you think your children aren't impacted, because they are. They're those little sponges. Katie, so what should a victim do? some action steps. If he or she finds themselves in the home, let's say the spouse loses a job or is furloughed or both of them, that's really the pit too. If you have a job and now you're kind of locked up with the abuser, you don't even have the daytime to get away from them. <laughs> what should he or she do if they find that it's escalating and there something needs to happen? What tangible acts right now can he or she do?
0: You know, I think education is really important. I think it's very important for our survivors and for people who are in these homes to do what they can to learn more about their situation. And one of those things could be that they develop a safety plan at home. I think in addition to that, being able to just know sort of what needs to happen in terms of action steps. Is there a discussion that you've had with your children about what should happen if things get loud or if things start crashing? Does that mean that you run outside and go to the neighbor's house and ask for help? Does that mean that we have a discussion in our home about keeping our cell phones charged so that we could call 911 if that's necessary? And it really just depends. But I think what people need to do is get educated and you can actually learn some information about domestic violence on our website. Um, and there are also national resources that you can look up. So if you go to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, that's another great place that has good information that you can read. But I think the biggest thing that you can do in addition to that is that you need to be able to raise the flag with people that can check on you. We're at home. Our kids are not going to school. We're in a situation where the abuser may be there all day, every day. And so we recognize that the window might be very limited. Walking around the block, talking to your neighbors, asking certain family members to call and check in on you. FaceTime is really good right now because the other people can get eyes on you. Yeah. Oh, that's huge.
1: And if there is violence going on in the home and there's a need for immediate intervention, what would you say and talk about for a moment? Because I think a lot of people assume that law enforcement and first responders and our medical personnel are too busy with bigger issues during COVID-19. What would you say to that person who says, I don't know about calling the police, what good would it do?
0: Well, that's not the case. I think that it's important for everyone to know that regardless of what type of victim of crime you might be, all of our law enforcement, hospitals, all of our essential workers out there are ready to respond. And so it's important to know that if you call 911, they're going to respond, you're going to get a response from them, and they're going to come out and sort of sort out the situation and decide what needs to happen. I think that One thing to consider though, is that not everybody is ready to call law enforcement. Good alternative might be that you have a go bag planned and that you're able to get a hotel room or leave to a friend's house or find some kind of alternative place that you might be able to vacate your home for a period of time. Or law enforcement is, is potentially an option as well, but that means that you're gonna have to report a crime and that law enforcement's gonna come to your house more than likely. And if
1: you're worried about where the abuser would stay once law enforcement gets involved, don't worry, they have a room for them.
0: Potentially, yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or at least can get them out of your hair for a while while you get safe.
0: Absolutely. I you know, California is a very interesting state. There is a mandatory arrest law here. And so if they're able to determine that somebody is a primary aggressor and that abuse has happened, then it's their job to respond to that. And part of that is separation.
1: Okay. So, how about the friends and the family and neighbors? What should they be looking for? What do you want to heavily encourage them to do on a proactive basis? And really, what can they do if they're concerned or suspect something might be going on?
0: The biggest thing is reach out. I think reaching out to provide support, check in on their family member, to make sure that everybody's okay is a big deal. I think frequent contact is important as well. We mentioned earlier that isolation is a big deal right now. So if somebody is experiencing isolation in the home, that means that they're not going to come to the phone or they're not going to answer the FaceTime or they may not show up for the digital play date. And so if there's a repetitive sense in that, then I think it's really important to continue reaching out. And if, if you're not getting that kind of feedback from somebody that you know that might be going through a hard time it might be necessary to decide if you want to do a drive-by at their house or to send somebody to check in on them. But I think frequent contact is the most important thing that you can do and and set up a plan with your the person that you know if there's a code word or a special code that you can give them if you need help so that you can signal and and provide that assistance is is also very important.
1: Now if a victim or a family, friend, neighbor, anyone in that group is thinking about for the victim getting safe in a safety plan, and also those who would be helpful to that victim. Are there resources where they can go if they're not really sure what a safety plan looks like to get help with creating one?
0: Yes, absolutely. So we actually have some information on our website that people can access. We also have the ability, there are a few really good tools that we have. There's an app called My Plan that people can download that will allow for them to pull together some safety planning information and, and just keep a plan together for themselves. We're also readily available by phone. All of our centers are still open, we're still providing help. So, if somebody just needs to talk and get a little bit of validation about what they're experiencing and even learn about their options, we're available to help for that as well. If somebody's in immediate danger, though, we encourage you to call 911. We encourage you to call the police. If you're a concerned citizen, you have the ability to request a welfare check with your local law enforcement officers and they'll be able to go out and just make sure everybody's okay.
1: Yeah, so important. And if someone, feels like they really need to get out of the home, but we're all told there's nowhere to go at this point, you're sheltering in place, what would you say to that process of, I need to get out of here, but there's nowhere for me to go? What would you say to that person?
0: If they're in a position where they're already sort of in that mindset, I think it's just important that they call for help whether that comes through 911 and the law enforcement officers refer them to us, or if they call us directly, that's a big deal. But I, I think it's, it's something that we all look at as being very serious. We know that many victims of abuse, they, they don't just readily leave their home it's actually very dangerous for them to leave. That's the most dangerous time for a victim is when they leave because that's their time of asserting their own control for once. And so that is perceived very negatively for abusers. And so if that happens, then I the absolute best thing that they can do is reach out for help. And a place like SAFE would be able to attempt to find
1: a safe location for that person to be in until further steps can be taken through the courts and law enforcement.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly. So our role would be to try and figure out what potential solutions there are available for housing, for shelter potentially, or for getting somebody connected with a family member. Sometimes all that's needed is a gas card to get somebody on a six-hour drive to go with their aunt so that they can be safe. Yeah. Um, so those are all things that we can potentially help with. In addition to that, we spent a lot of time talking about education. If there's a restraining order that's needed, we can help facilitate that process. We work with local law enforcement agencies so we can help facilitate reporting of a crime if that's necessary. And we have the ability to get people connected with basic needs and essentials and sort of figure out what's next. It is not outside of our business norm to get somebody who shows up at our... Door with absolutely nothing, just telling us they can't go home. So, we're trained, we know how to respond to that. But I think the most effective thing for people is we want to try and get to them and have dialogue with them about making a plan so that if that moment happens, they have a little bit more structure and thought about what it is they need to do to escape.
1: Yes, yes. The bottom line is just reach out, there is so much help there at any stage, and you can help educate them. And having known about SAFE and what SAFE is all about for many, many years, I can say that you folks over there at SAFE are some of the most creative and most resourceful leaders in this area of domestic violence. And it seems like no need goes unmet, that you're all able to really, it's not above and beyond you to help these victims who come in with literally just the shirt on their backs and couple of kids in tow to get them to the right place. So it's there. So no matter what, regardless of where where you are in the country, you need to reach out to the local domestic violence assistance center. Well, Katie Gilbertson, this has been such a pleasure to have you on. You're doing God's work. We are so thankful for you and everyone at the Family Justice Center. Thank you so much. And we're going to link to all these great resources on the show notes. And I'm just praying for your health
0: and that you keep rejuvenated through these challenging times. Thank you so much for having us. just want to say one more thing. We work with people who are in all stages of their relationship. So it's important for people to know that if they're not ready to leave or they don't know what the next step is, we can still help them as well. I think we talked a lot about the, the chronic emergency of I already left and I need help, but we our role is to do both. We can help yeah. in all of those stages wherever you are in your life. Yeah, and the programs
1: you have and the one-on-one help you provide is just amazing. And I'm glad you mentioned that uh, yeah. because there are a lot of free stages to this in relational things that need to be, there needs to be a lot more education on that and you provide it. So, all right, Katie, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Well, there you have it. Katie Gilbertson really delivered today, didn't she? I want you to remember what Katie shared today. If you've been the target of abuse Remember, there are advocates through the DA's office and local domestic violence agencies who are here to help you. They're waiting for your call, and they are here to advocate just for you and your family. Watch for those signs, those signs of escalation that we talked about during the show. And please remember, this is a power and a control problem. And it's not about you. It's about the abuser. So if you or someone you know is at risk, please take action right now to develop a safety plan. Talk to your children about what to do in certain situations. If, like Katie said, if they hear a crashing sound or a cry for help from you, tell them what to do. Tell them exactly where they go, whether it's running to the neighbors or calling grandma or calling the police, you have to have a plan. And reach out, above all, reach out for help if you need it, reach out to a family or a friend or a neighbor. Don't be ashamed. This is not a thing for you to be ashamed of, although oftentimes abusers will try to use shame as part of the power and control. So whether you're a victim of abuse or whether you're a friend, a family member, or a neighbor, please be sure go to kellybennettesquire.com. That's kellybennettesq.com forward slash 040 to check out the resources for this episode and the show notes. We're gonna list all those resources there and those links and the links to SAFE as well. And I want you to really look at those and pass those on. If you know somebody who's in need, look at those resources and help walk somebody who's in need through them and let them know, seriously, this could be the difference between life or death. These are some really difficult times with the whole COVID-19 and the economic impact, but despite us all kind of turning inward and sheltering in place at home, like here I am in my home office broadcasting from here, let's not forget to continually look outward And look out for one another. That's what we hope this broadcast does for you today. This episode encourages you to look out for one another. And again, if you are someone who is the target of abuse, know that help is there. All you need to do is ask for it, even if it's the smallest little bit from a neighbor or friend. Let someone come alongside and help you. They can help you get through and get you connected to the resources you need. Well, that's. we've got today. That was a lot, right? As always, please, if you enjoyed the podcast, give us a shout out on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also shoot me a note. I'd love to hear from you via email or on our Facebook page or even Instagram. And let me know the kinds of things that you would like us to cover here in the On Fire Empire podcast, or just let us know your thoughts on this episode. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash Kelly Bennett ESQ and on Instagram at Kelly Bennett underscore ESQ. All right, friends. Well, until next time, live with gusto and ignite your empire. Ciao.